Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and virtual production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. We're going to talk about jobs. What do you need to be ready for the next layer of jobs, level of jobs, uh, group of jobs. So we'll talk about how to prepare people for that uh, in the second hour. If you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw it in. And now let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one is from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, I had a stream Tuesday with capturing the slides directly and then picture in picture the speaker when the presenter was constantly turning around and pointing at the screen. So beside full screening the slides, which I did, what techniques have you found most effective? I mean, what we try to do is get people to stop turning around. I mean, you know, we, we, and, and that is a behavioral problem typically is, and, and it's not something that's easy for people to, to stop doing because they've been doing it, you know, many people have been doing it for 20 or 30 years. So it's hard to get them to stop looking at it. Um, the, the main thing you have to do is provide the tools that they need so that they don't have the temptation to turn around. And so that has to do with confidence monitoring. So you have basically, you got to, figure out how to put their display in front of them so that they can really see it. So they're more likely to look down or in, in a perfect world, look up. So where we like to put confidence monitors, big ones, is over the camera. <laughs> so over the camera, under the camera, in the back of the room, uh, wherever it is, so that they're, they're tempted to look up at it. Um, the other thing that, you know, the reason we got into doing this is because once speakers get it, you know, once one speaker uses it a lot, they all use it and then they stop turning around, you know, because they because now they have something in front of them and they and the, all that laser pointering and pointing and everything else is now doing stuff like this and pointing down. And, so, and what's interesting is the people who really like this are the financial people because they have all those Excel files <laughs> and they love circling groups of, of things. Um, and uh, so it's just a matter of uh, the, the part of it is training people and the other part is to is to. Think about how do you build an environment that that calls for a certain behavior. Go ahead, Bill. Well, also, I've done a number of these, and I try my best not to rely on the picture-in-picture picture, picture of the speaker. If there's any way I can arrange it so that I'm getting a full-face uh, feed, and I understand this problem of the speaker turning around to present something on a screen, but all I really want is the face because in 99 times out of 100, I can get the deck later. And then as an editor, I have the cutaway possibilities to go to the slides whenever I need to full screen and then back to the presenter full screen. And should I choose to put them in a picture in picture, I can do that and control whether or not you can, it's big enough to see their facial expressions or whatever. So in almost all cases, I try not to use a fed picture in picture, particularly these ones with a little person. Sometimes you have to do it, but that's my preference. Yeah. I mean, and some of this comes down to a, a slow campaign that, that, that I've, that I've engaged in quite a few times, which is that I remind people when they say they want picture in picture, that nothing screams corporate presentation more than a picture in picture. <laughs> like, like, you know, like that's like that, that picture in picture is the, is the ultimate, I am a corporate event, <laughs> you know, and so because just I just ask people, how often do you see that in broadcast? Not very often. You don't see a lot of people speaking in, in a corner. Um, they they just don't they don't do that. And so if you want if if you want to be thinking because a lot of people dream that their presentations are going to look like a like a like a, a broadcast, and so usually you know dropping that just small doses of that poison across the entire team slowly eliminates picture in picture over sometimes six months or a year. Go ahead, Bill. 
And the one other thing is that the Zoom default picture in picture, at least the ones I've been recording off my Final Cut broadcast, is a little tiny thing way up in the corner. It's not entirely clear of the frame. It's like it hangs on outside. So one technique I use a lot is if I'm talking about something in the upper right-hand corner, I like to push to that, blow it up, and usually I have enough resolution to do that. But then I've got this bad little picture every time I go wide that's off-center because of that little frame. So I'm not yeah. a big fan of that. Yeah, so we just try to find the ways we can cut back and forth. Uh, next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York is up next. And he says, morning, guys. Has anyone had the chance to hook up a multicam setup using only Insta360s? And if so, what are the pros, cons, and so forth? Go ahead, Mitch. We were uh, talking about this last night on After Hours. And um, I don't have one personally, but uh, Tom indicated that uh, he had that OBSPOT um, uh, adapter that has the two USB connection, uh, the thing that uh, Alex is, nope, he's holding up the 360s. But anyhow, until they have the ability to loop through uh, the second uh, USB to allow the computer to control, uh, it's going to be a problem uh, getting the PTZ function to work unless you're running through like um, OBS or, um, you know, vMix, something of that nature. Yeah, the, um, uh, so this is the, these are, I got two of them. I'm probably going to get a third one. Uh, so these are the little, this is the little Insta360 uh, link that's being spoken about right now. And I have tested over the weekend, actually got a time to test both of them together. Uh, the app will see both of them separately. So basically you have a drop dropdown um, in the app and you can just select, I don't know how many you can select, but at least two. Um, so it just has a list. There's a couple drawbacks. One is that you can't change the name. So it's like some long, you know, <laughs> numbers, you know, so, so whatever name you see at an Insta 360, you're stuck with that. Um, so, so you have the name can't be changed. It does change. There's a hump where when you go between each one, it, it stops for a second and it goes talks to the other one. So it's not a clean switch back and forth between the two of them while you're working. Your, your, all your presets and settings for each camera appear to be independent. So you can, it switches over and now it's in a different mode. So it does do that problem is if you were going to use it in a production, you want to have access to all those presets for all those cameras in real time, not I have to switch to another camera. So if you're using it slowly and you're not trying to really build a show, you could do it with the Insta360s the, with the links. Uh, and so for some training for an overhead camera that you're mostly going to change the overhead camera, may, maybe make fine adjustments to yourself, um, I think it would work. If you're trying to actually build a show show, you need to have those presets and you need to have those controls be a little more open. I think that the good news is, is for these to become more useful is just a software problem. It's not a, a hardware problem. So, so these are, um, you know, I think that they're going to be pretty useful. You, you're, you're right that you can't use them with an ATEM, but you can use them with many other things that would be web only. Keynote, Memo Live, um, uh, OBS, vMix, all of these things would be able to see those, those webcams um, and be able to cut between them quickly, but being able to actually control them, you know, I don't know of a, of an API yet for them. So it's, it's hard to know what you could do uh, through the software. Go ahead, Mitchell. I think the deal buster would be the one or two second delay when you're switching to control one of the cameras. That I don't think it's a deal buster. Thing. It just depends on how you're using it. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to, if you're only making fine adjustments and, and you're mostly controlling one camera, because if you're doing a three camera shoot, 
you know, you may only be doing, you know, a very simple changes to those things um, while the person's talking. And maybe one of them is roaming around more often than others. But one's going to be on the person, another, like, let's just say cooking. One's going to be on the person, one's going to be on the cutting board, one's going to be on the stove. And you're not going to move. I mean, I, I did those with, with Demiante without any movement, but it would have been nice to make little adjustments of, oh, I want to go in a little bit for this sh shot. So, you know, selecting that and, and tapping a preset that I know that I'm going to go to wouldn't be a horrible, you know, experience for it. So I don't know if it's a deal buster, but it definitely is something that they need to. And again, what I want to do is be able to have, you know, I, hopefully they just open it up as API because people like us could write something for it that would, that would be way better. Um, you know, to, to make that work. But I will say that they're still, um, for a webcam, uh, this is the best one so far. Next question. Next one comes from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, and he wants to talk about background holders. He says, I'm unlikely to be at my home studio when I really need one. What have you found to be the smallest, most portable backdrop holder? Good, Bill. So there's a couple of different kinds. There are clip types that just go at the top of a portable background, and you can get them in both plastic and metal, and they're really pretty good. At least the good ones, I think, are really pretty good. There's another kind that I prefer if I'm taking a tripod or anything long on a shoot. There's a, a, a kind of a stick kind, and the advantage of that is that it usually has two rubber clips, and you can be stretched out, sometimes a, a good distance, and that will provide you support on two parts. That in, I think is a little more stable in terms of being able to put it exactly where you want. But if you're really trying to be portable, the clip types that you put on a crossbar or some sort of overhead mounting that just holds the background is probably your best bet because it's the most portable and most travelable. Yeah, I mean, I think that it depends on, you know, how portable and how small it needs to be. You know, we use, I mean, I've used a lot of these kind of, many people make these like video studio backdrops that are like 10 foot by 12 foot. Those will all fit into a little, a little bag that you can throw in the back of your car. If you, and, and we've definitely taken those and you can stretch them both to the poles that are going up and the pole that goes across, but all of it breaks down into almost nothing. Um, and they're, you know, 30 or $40. So as far as stretching something open to it, um, it's pretty, pretty uh, portable. Go ahead, Jeff. I guess the big question is why? That's the first question. The answer is like, why is it bad to see what's behind you? as I say this with a screen behind me, hiding a bunch of junk in my office, but it's a little <laughs> bit different. You know, it, it's, you know, I think that the thing that I've had, the, the issue that I've had with it is, has been, um, I go to a hotel and the, there's just weird stuff behind me. Like the hotel, whoever the interior designer was for the hotel. I had one who was on the show. Someone goes back and there was like a, a woman dancing kind of in a weird way, you know, behind me. And I was kind of like, I don't, I wouldn't want to be in a meeting that way. And I, until someone pointed it out right before the show, I hadn't really thought about it because it was just like, I don't, I just relate to things as when I go into hotels, I have a tendency to just relate to wall, 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 wall. I don't really look at what's on the walls. I just, that there's a wall there. And um, so then I became more sensitive to it. I haven't taken my gray screen with me, but it sure did tempt me to. Um, and so it's, uh, so I think that that, I think that's, that might be some of it. And I'm, and I'm doing the same thing, Jeff, that, oh, I'm not hiding any junk. I'm just hiding a big window. That'd be horribly hard for me to light if I didn't put something in front of it. Um, go ahead, Bill. Well, sometimes it's it's for um, aesthetics, but sometimes it's also for security. For example, here that curtain over my the, over that shoulder is actually covering a whiteboard or parts of a light whiteboard, and sometimes there's content on there from one of my client meetings that is proprietary, and I don't want it to get out. So, you know, there's a variety of reasons why you want to cover up the background. Some of them very legitimate. Yeah. So, so anyway, but I think that from a portable 
I mean, the one that I like the most, if I can, if you can fit it, is the one that I have here, which is, um, I mean, I, I've, I've bought a, quite a few of these. And these are the Manfrotto. They're now Manfrotto. They used to be um, Lastolite, but they're Manfrotto and they're six by seven. They roll up into something that's about three by three, like the burrito, or not a burrito, but the taco. We call it the, ta the gray taco. Anyway, so, um, and we put those together. They have a little arm that fits on the top of a light stand that you put on and they just snap to it. And it's really pretty, pretty great to put those up and take them down. So we've got a bunch of them. <laughs> so we, we use them often. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Sean Don. Uh, how can I receive an SRT feed if I do not have network admin to get through the firewall? Go ahead, Jeff. Rendezvous mode would be one way. Or a server that flips it, basically. Uh, we use Sienna ourselves to do that quite often. So we send from caller to caller. So it's just a negotiation. It's actually not sending it. It's the the direction you're sending things are completely different than just getting the connection. But getting the connection over rendezvous is one way. It's actually not as simple as that. It's better to use a server. You can use something like Sienna's processing engine or the uh, high vision or a nimble server uh, for that matter too. Good guy. Yeah, high, high vision gateway is what you can use up in the cloud. Like Jeff said, um, you could also use, if you, if you can't pop open ports, um, like on this shadow PC that I was playing with over the weekend, Chris Widener turned me on, you, you can't open up ports. So uh, we use SRT mini server, which you can rent for like 30, 40 bucks a month. And that'll do that, that handshake and that turn. And then you can bring in SRT feeds. So SRT mini server, I'll put a link in the chat. Next question. Aaron Gencarelli in Flagstaff, Arizona is in with this, looking at a Bergdog P120 or a Blackmagic Studio Camera 4K. It's for corporate AV meetings. I'd like to hear what the panelists think. Which one would suit live hybrids better as a second camera? Thoughts? Good guy. Uh, with the larger sensor on the Blackmagic, you're going to get a, a better cinematic look, but it just depends on how far back you are because there's a 20x um, zoom on that um, 120. I'd also be looking at the one that I have behind me, which is the 200, P200. So it's got the 30 uh, along with the the full NDI. And that's that's the nice thing about the Bird Dogs is it's full NDI. So it just depends also on your workflow. That P120 also has the uh, USB out, which is nice if you want to do some things like pop it right into Zoom and have uh, far end control. So it just depends on your operator, how, who's going to operate it. And then again, what lens you're going to get, because if it's a total package price, where do you land with that camera fully loaded with everything? And then operator daily, who, who's going to run it? Go, Jeff. I can't hear you, Jeff. I'm just quieter on this side than I usually am. I'm a big <laughs> fan of PTZs myself. And so if there's ever a chance that I could put a PTZ in a position that has uh, a camera, I'm going to put it there just for that one time that I need to just slightly move it and not have to send somebody there to physically move it. So I would go with that, but I would lean away from the 120. I would lean towards the two, the new 200 series um, versus if you're wanting to stay in bird dog, if you need an NDI workflow uh, or just happen to like the price point that they're at uh, i tend to go more panasonic myself yeah the um I, I think that definitely if you need the reach so look at how big your rooms are is this, is this a corporate conference room or is it a large room you know large room that you have to put in the back or you're going to have to do a little bit of both um, i can tell you that a bunch of us are swarming on the the just waiting for sony to release the fr7 like we're all i mean we're in I'm trying to pre-order four of them. <laughs> so uh, for the kind of stuff we do now, we don't have to throw very far. So, you know, our throws are, 
you know, typically not more than 20 feet. So you just have to decide that's about as far as you're going to be able to get a good shot. Um, so you have to kind of keep in mind the size of the camera, but they, you know, it's a full frame sensor with a PTZ. <laughs> so, but I definitely agree with both Guy and, and Jeff that PTZs are the way to go. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, comes up with the 11 inch and 12.9 inch iPad Pros feature an M2 chip, support for new Apple Pencil hover functionality, Wi Fi 6E support, and ProRes video recording. Can you do a deep dive into the Pencil and ProRes features? I think it's harder for us to do a deep dive because we haven't received any of them yet. So they're still, they're still, they're uh, still there. And, and even I, after spending a whole bunch of money on other things, I'm waiting for a little bit. I have to admit, um, the, the only thing that really interests me about the new um, iPad is the, the possible, the floating of the pencil and whether it can be basically like an airbrush, you know, whether it gives kind of airbrush functionality that some of the uh, Intuos uh, Wacom tablets have. So that's the thing that I'm interested in. I don't know what would use the M2 <laughs> like anytime right now. So I don't, I mean, my iPads feel like they go as fast as they need to go. I've got the last two years worth of them. So I think partially I'm not necessarily the target audience because I already have the last two generations. Uh, usually I keep up with these because of the show I'm on, but but it's a little, um, I, I, you know, like the ProRes video is great, but it's got not the same camera system as the phone. So if without that camera system, it doesn't seem like it's worth doing. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I don't think Apple are looking for you to go from the M1 MacBook Pro, uh, uh, iPad Pro to the M2, at least they're not I agree. for me. And if they were, they should have done a much better job of explaining why. And I think probably for that Pro, they're going to start spinning that the same way they spin the, the phones. And the year-to-year -year comparison isn't meaningful always. Yeah, and I think that the TikTok right now is really complex you know because the you know the the air and the or the new ipads have different features than the ipad pros um like the middle camera the camera in the middle of the screen makes a big difference and they but it's not been it's not in the new form factor so it's a very odd way to kind of approach re a release schedule go ahead bill I was going to say, Apple is doing a lot of work in integrating and automating um, the pencil into some of their workflows. I'm using it a good little bit with Keynote these days. And if I have something like this, um, the fact that I can highlight a particular blue thing out of the others, and that's just one of the things, I mean, along with the drawing uh, capabilities. And the thing that impresses me about it is not so much you can do these things. A lot of packages can do these things, but they've integrated it so well. I don't have to do anything other than launch Keynote. And yeah. then I went into presentation mode and I could see the two up. If I tap on any of the ones I can see, it'll pop right. up and invoke the pencil yeah. and it just makes it easier. But but that's been around for the last two, at least two or three generations. So, yeah. I mean, or more four or five generations. So that's the thing is that is that I guess when we look at the new ones coming out, the the hover is the thing that I that I'm interested in, but not because I want it to be show me where I'm at before I touch it. It's because I want to I really want to be able to do airbrush. I don't want to do airbrush. I think that somebody people want to do it. It's a airbrushing is a really powerful tool when it comes to doing texture mapping. So if I want to do something, I want it to be soft, and I don't want to. I want to be able to control how how hard it is by how close I am to the to the surface. Um, there's a lot of people who do that uh, who rely on that. Uh, when you're when you're actually texturing. Next question. Aaron Giacarelli uh, is back with this one. I had a panelist come in via Zoom that sounded echoey when they plugged in. Their headphone with microphone or whatever they were using sounded like they were underwater when they unplugged their microphone and used the onboard laptop mic. Any idea why? I looked at this question early earlier today and I can't quite figure out what happened there. It sounds like they didn't have their headphones on. 
So you might've been hearing um, a return because they were just open speakers at that point with the microphone. Um, and so I, I, that's the only thing I could kind of figure out. The other thing that I was wondering about is where, whether somehow there was a, a, um, in their connection, things got reversed. Like they didn't push something in all the way and it was actually using their headphones as speak as microphones, which will actually work. Um, but if you put your headphones on and then you use them as you would sound exactly like that. <laughs> so, so the, um, and so I don't, I, it, it, I, I don't, I can't quite understand what, what actually was, um, you might have to ask that again. Um, uh, yeah, we can't quite, quite figure out what, what that, what that is. So I'm going to think about that one. Yeah. Next question. Next one comes from Chris Widener again in Lafayette, Indiana. And he, Chris says, do we know what time iPad OS 16 will be released today? No idea, <laughs> but, but sometime today, hopefully. So, um, so it's, it's, it should be, should be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, next question. Aaron is right back. Aaron G. Corelli of uh, Flagstaff. ATEM Extreme ISO will start recording to the drive, but will not stop recording. Use the same drive that worked many times, but now the only way to stop it is to unplug the USB drive from ISO. Tried rebooting the ISO and reformatting the drive. Any other ideas? Go ahead, John. What I saw online was um, some people having the same trouble with drives that they used before. They changed the streaming quality to a lower amount, and that allowed them to start and stop. It seems like a issue with the performance of the drive that is causing the ATEM to be overloaded, uh, and then not to stop a recording until you unplug it or restart the ATEM. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what drive you're using, you know, for for that. Um, you know, that so it may have worked in the past, but you may be doing something different with it. Um, I'd be interested to know if it was a T7. <laughs> so so that, that would be the one that I would worry about the most. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it would, be, it would be interesting to know if you can ask another question where you ask, uh, you tell us what drive it was, we might be able to be more helpful. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. As Zoom moves toward professional capabilities for production, such as Zoom ISO, can we see them adding the ability for admins to see what default camera and or audio input is being used by participants as well as remotely change it? Good, John. Well, today using the Zoom dashboard, you can see what camera and video that someone is using. Uh, the ability to remotely change it, I don't know what security concerns there could be there, uh, but definitely something that would be interesting to be able to take over. There are different products um, uh, that do offer that if you're doing like um, streaming uh, that allow you to select a device for the client and as well as ISO record and get it over to you. But uh, having that in Zoom would be a nice feature. Good guy. Yeah, John's right. In the dashboard, you can see, I believe it's only people in your org, though. You can see not only their their camera, their specific camera that the system sees. So if it says Brio, it'll actually tell the full, the full meal deal. And then uh, it'll actually tell the audio interface as well. In order to switch those cameras, if there is multiple inputs, if the meeting is set up with uh, far end control available, you can, when you go to request camera control, there is a little button down in the bottom right that'll say, um, switch camera so you can cycle through all their cameras and somebody like me if you hit hit mine like that it'll cycle through like nine cameras because there's so many ndi feeds and other feeds in my system so you got to be careful because you it, it goes all the way to the bottom that goes all the way to the top so if you're looking for a certain camera it could be a, a hunt to get to it yeah one of the things that i think is going to be possible is as, as we start looking at zoom apps you know these are these are going to be apps that are sitting next to it i don't i'm not sure how they're sandboxed but that's going to be another possibility, you know, that's there. And, and again, when we get to a point where we're, where we want to control the camera, 
we start thinking about we want to send a computer. And once we send a computer, we're going to have control over it. <laughs> so, you know, if, if it's at a level that we want to say, we want, absolutely want to use this camera through, throughout this thing, and we don't think the person has the technical capability of doing it, what we tend to do is send cameras. I mean, send computers, you know, with it, Mac minis, um, typically to make that work. Next question. Eduardo Augustine in Panama, uh, Panama says, I've got a LiveView Solo Plus and haven't been able to get LiveView Reliable Transport to successfully work through a full stream. Has anyone else had this issue? It starts bonding and then dies with zero kilobits per second. Hey, go ahead, Jeff. Sorry. Um, yes, I, we've seen that before, and it was always something in the configuration, uh, but it wasn't with Solo. It was with one of our, our bigger units, and it was a quick call to LiveView, and it was fixed within minutes after we got a hold of them. So it's something of, of how their backend is set up and how your account is going through. Um, unfortunately, it's going to be a little bit harder to get hold of somebody with the Solo that's not part of their support. Um, so get a hold of Dan if you're on part of the Facebook uh, group, the solo group. That's a great way. He hangs out there all the time and uh, be glad to help you. Next question. Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware says, Mickey and Tom helped me try a better camera grade on my Sony FX3 last night on After Hours. What do you think? Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I had the uh, ISO set too high, and then the shutter speed was at the wrong speed. So we uh, monkeyed around with it, and I think it's clear, but I want to hear what you guys think. I think it looks better. Yeah. I think it's it's a subtle improvement because it already looked pretty good, but I think that it looks a little bit more natural. Um, and um, so I, I think it's an improvement. Good work. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Have any of you used Aphex Arl Exciter? And he's got the link there to increase speech intelligibility. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, sorry, I hit the wrong button there. Um, Arl Exciter is, uh, is probably the original Aphex uh, effect. Um, in fact, if you go back to the history of what the Arl Exciter was, I'll make it real quick. Um, it was actually a, a, uh, a mistake that the original inventor found when he was building a heath kit. And what it basically is, is it creates uh, multiple harmonics in upper presence range frequencies, but they're musical in nature. So they don't, they're not necessarily objectionable, but the problem with it is, is it's adding something that doesn't exist. And um, I think that used in small amounts by professional mixers makes sense. But the minute they started putting oral exciters on a, uh, uh, prosumer and uh, customer leveled uh, devices, it started being abused. I have it on my Aphex. It is bypassed. Um, and it, uh, I, it, in my opinion, maybe just a tiny bit, but for the most part, I could do without it. And then the other problem is there's another uh, plugin that works with it. Uh, it's called Big Bottom uh, that Aphex has, and it's trying to add bottom where you don't have it. And uh, again, my point is that if you're trying to sound like James Earl Jones or Courtney, um, you're not going to sound like them no matter how many plugins you apply. So don't like it. Go to Alex. Alex. Yeah, I prefer to use traditional EQ for that sort of thing. However, I will say the oral exciter stuff uh, works really well in music production on specific instruments. So sometimes it can be either the big bottom or the oral exciter can can um, 
can add character to something of an instrument, like maybe adding it on a bass or something like that, where you want it to kind of be a little bit more snappy sounding. So in music production, I see people using it uh, more often there, not necessarily post-production. Next question. Paul Valus, Austin, Texas asks, why didn't Apple add MagSafe to their new iPad Pro? Is it technically even possible? What are some of the coolest accessories to go with MagSafe? And just what is MagSafe? Go ahead, Nigel. I'm not sure I can answer MagSafe technically other than it's a magnetic way of connecting your power, but I would think that uh, Apple is looking actually to go the other way and work out how to get rid of all connectors from things like iPads and looking through different uh, techniques the same the way they have done with the iPhone. And I, I, if you think of devices like iPort, which allow you to dock your iPad, I think rather than go MagSafe, they'd probably get rather get rid of the power altogether. Go ahead, Bill. I agree, actually, with everything Nigel just said. Uh, uh, the most number of iPads in service, I'm going to bet, is as point-of-sale um, not term well it terminals basically in retail i i go to so many stores now and each of the salespeople have an ipad uh and they're entering and reacting to and signing you up for things if you go into any apple store they use them almost exclusively for every bit of io that happens with the store computers and so i think they they think of this device as something that you're going to carry with you and hold on to it's not a desktop device where MagSafe makes sense. The MagSafe solution is a magnetic power connection so that if you accidentally uh, run into it, it doesn't pull your machine down off there. And if you're using something portably in your hand, that's not a consideration. Go, John. When you're using the uh, Magic Keyboard from them, essentially that is what you're getting. So you're able to dock the dock, uh, iPad into that. It's going to pass power and data through that port. Uh, which is definitely useful to, um, I, I use it all the time for, for what I use the iPads for. If I need to get power, if I need to get anything else going, I can just drop it right in that dock. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, Bill just prompted me to say that um, I was uh, at a Formula One race over the weekend with 140,000 of my closest friends, and every single one of the retail uh, point-of-sale pieces was an iPad mini with a square on it. And that, that's how they did all of the retail for the whole of the, of the uh, all the food, all the concessions. And now if they had a network that supported it, it would have helped. But that that's the power <laughs> thing of that. <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, and I think that I think data transfer uh, for most of these things, it's really hard to get past the, especially now that we're at USB-C, USB-C speeds is hard if you're going to use it for a pro solution. So I think that that's going to be, um, you know, not only power, but but getting that data is going to be really important. Um, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael's up next. And Douglas says, it has been rumored that the second mic in the Biden administration presidential kip is a Sheps capsule in a Sure SM57 shell. If that is true, why could that be, and how would it be done? And as a note, uh, we've got a great panel here. Uh, we're going to end up going to the second hour early if we don't get more questions, and that's totally up to you as the producers. Uh, but uh, we're cutting through these really, really fast. So if you've got questions, this is a great morning to Adam. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Douglas, I've heard the same rumor um, that the Sheps would be put in there. The only reason to use a Shep, whether you're disguising it or not, is it is a much cleaner uh, microphone for pickup, and it's loud. Um, it's very able to uh, to increase volume. So the plausibility uh, part of that rumor comes into play when you consider that the president uh, and Joe Biden 
He's not much of an orator. He's a quiet-spoken man. So having a Sheps in there, even if it is disguised to look like an American-made microphone, um, tends to increase his intelligibility, which uh, is a wonderful thing. Good, Bill. Also, they've been using that dual rig SM57 mic mount for presidential addresses really for about 50 years now. And those are not run by the audio department. They are run by the Secret Service because obviously you want complete control over everything that is near the president's head at all times. So those, I'm sure, go in a case with a Secret Service agent and nobody gets anywhere close to them as they're setting up all these remote things. So I don't think it's there so much for the audio functions, because the 57 is a great mic, don't get me don't be wrong, but it's not the best possible. So I can see them wanting additional clarity and additional noise reduction and just switching out the capsules so that everything else, all the cases that they put them in and everything else remains exactly the same. I think it's the Air Force, actually. <laughs> oh, it's it the, the Air Force. It does the mics. So the, um, uh, it's, it's a, yeah, anyway, the, um, uh, I do think it's probably just not to look ostentatious, but still have the quality that they needed. <laughs> you know, I think that that's probably the the uh, the reason that they're they're doing that. Uh, next question, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, up again. This time he says, "What's the latest news about the wise treasure hunt that Preto, Jonas, and Guy are hot on the trail of? And what is today's new clue?" And he's got that listed in here. Go ahead, John. Well, this is not a popular question. The, the one thing that I'm enthralled with is this is basically a publicity stunt and they're getting good publicity today is their fifth year anniversary and they're releasing a new product and this whole hunt was a promotion for their new product that's coming out today. so they're so they're they have the product somewhere and you have to find it is that the is that they the buried a camera in in washington over by guy and they, if you find it you get ten thousand dollars i just thought you get the camera okay all right <laughs> they get one you get one of every one of their products in addition to the money Oh, that's great. Uh, Nigel? There is something uniquely office hours about this. That so far, the team have spent $20,000 of hours and time. They've hired <laughs> people. They've done it. You know, they've got keyhole satellites. Working. We need a helicopter, Nigel. Yeah, they, they, they've spent more, 10 times more money trying to find this thing than, than it's worth because of the joy of the technology. And I think it's been fun to watch. I'll also in the chat leave um, a link to the very famous masquerade treasure hunt that ended in tears and lawsuits and threats. So um, something to look forward to there, John. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, the whole idea that people are wandering around in the Pacific Northwest, digging holes in people's private property and yards uh, is considerable. Uh, and as Nigel just said, the amount of time being, uh, well, I don't know if wasted, unless the outcome is good for them, uh, is uh, distracting because uh, uh, isn't it true that they have zoologists uh, analyzing the creatures that occasionally walk through the uh, the scene in order to try to narrow down the uh, the habitat? Uh, it's it's kind of a funny thing, but it I think it distracts from the cameras' uh, capabilities. It's cameras aren't supposed to make you money that way. I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's like, I think that they're I think finding some way to get people involved in it and giving them a, an outcome to put out you know to to do something that's a little bit out of the box. I think it's a lot of fun. Now, next question. Gordon Lake, Los Angeles. On a 10-hour shoot day with no catering and a walk-away lunch, what represents good craft services? I guess it's, and I'm assuming that it's saying no catering and a walk, and no, I'm assuming, and no walk-away lunch, which is 
I don't know how many times someone's going to get people to show up if they do no 10-hour day with no catering and no walk-away lunch. All, all I'll say is that the, the, one, the one rule about production is that you feed the crew. Even if they're, even if they're all volunteering, you feed the crew. Um, you know, like that's the, that's the key to that's uh, Mitchell. Yeah, I guarantee you the conversation among the crew, uh, if the food has uh, been cheaped out on like pizza or finger sandwiches um, or hamburgers uh, from a local fast food place, it's going to be the only thing they can talk about. They're going to be concerned with their stomachs and not what's going on on the, on the shoot. At the very least, if they get stuck and they can't do decent craft services, um, a reasonable per diem is good. But then again, you don't want people leaving the, uh, the set. You got John. Shout out to Eric Price, the producer on Office Hours, who drove out here from Kansas to do the Office Hours catering, uh, craft services. It was absolutely spectacular. He spent weeks planning, food allergies, um, to ensure that everybody was fed on on in the middle of the desert. So it, it was fantastic. Yeah, the... What I will say is that, you know, I, I can't say that we, we always have the nicest, uh, you know, catering. We do the best we can um, with with those types of things. We found some pretty good places that we oftentimes go. Um, and we, uh, you know, try to have both protein, you know, some nuts, nuts and nuts, <laughs> a lot of nuts. We do put out some, um, I've, I've eased up some of my rules and I'm not sure if it's a good idea. We used to not ever put candy out until after 4 p.m., but it's been out more often recently. I just noticed in one of our shoots. We I was in shoots all, all last week, so <laughs> it's fresh in my mind. Um, we do try to take people's orders. Um, you know, we have a couple of places that we go. DoorDash has been become very popular for us um, in, in those types of things. But we take orders from good places, like so that people can get salads and sandwiches and whatever they want, as opposed to just um, what we found was what was hard was to cater something, having someone doing hot cook stuff and then, you have this person's vegetarian, that person's gluten-free, and this person is, it's easier to order from somewhere um, to have that done. Um, so the, uh, so, you know, for breakfasts, you know, my favorite breakfast personally is, um, uh, is Starbucks. <laughs> so I, I really like the, um, the impossible burgers. I've become quite obsessed with the impossible burgers, which, which I didn't think I'd like. I actually got introduced to them in, in Frisco. Yeah, um, it, I was doing some work there and um, in Frisco, uh, 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 Texas, <laughs> so which was an odd place to learn about an Impossible Burger. Anyway, so um, the uh, uh, I, I think that having stuff around that people can grab nuts, um, jerky, um, you know, some breads or muffins or something around in the morning and, and something else in the afternoon makes makes a difference. Uh, definitely having water is important and coffee. Like definitely having coffee. Don't bother with them. I don't, I have to admit, I don't bother with decaffeinated coffee. I mean, cause no one on a set really cares about, you know, they don't even care about the temperature most of the time. We try to keep it hot, but what they care about is that there's caffeine in it um, because they're, they're, you know, they're working and they're trying to keep up. So make sure that you have coffee all the time. You know, go ahead, Mitchell. Chipotle. Yeah, we had some trouble with Chipotle, but uh, Rustic Bakery here in, in the Bay Area is something we, we you know, JJ mentioned in there. It's uh, they great salads, but we've had some issues with the Chipotle delivery uh, process. And so we was oftentimes getting things that were mismatched. So we, we did use Chipotle for a while and then we had enough problems with it that we stopped using Chipotle. <laughs> so, so it was, but you know, we were doing it all the time. Um, so, um, so we had a high sample rate. Um, and then we have a burrito places nearby, but I, I try to only do burritos now at dinner because crews are much less effective after they have the burritos that are near just too much, uh, a big burrito is is good to give people dinner when they only have an hour or two to work of work to do, but not good at lunch because they'll fade by four. Um, next question. 
Next one comes from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. He says, has anyone used the rat hitch mounted vehicle mast before? He's got a link there. And if so, thoughts? It looks cool. I saw, I went and checked it out while, while we were going through it. It looks like a, it looks like a cool uh, apparatus. Go ahead, Jeff. It's not that exact model, but we had a local television station that had something very similar on the back of one of their small SUVs. Uh, there's four or five different manufacturers out there, but this one I like myself. Actually, it'd be great to put a Starlink on the top of uh, to get it up over trees whenever you want to get the best signal possible. Uh, that was one thing I was thinking, the high shot to have for beauty shots and stuff. We have some stands that go 30 feet in the air, uh, but they're about 85 pounds. So yeah, they're a little bit more than just a single person lift to get in sight uh, and get them up in the air. They kind of wiggle around a little bit. So it'd be interesting to me. It says a 45 pound capacity, which I think as a possible option, I think that's really high thinking 45 pounds is a lot of weight to put up in the top of a pole and be stable. So if you're using it for cameras, that would be the, the thing. We actually had our stands adjusted from a 35-foot length down to, it's 2830, somewhere in there. I can't remember exactly. But we took out a section. And uh, we're, being from Texas, we use end zone poles is what they're most of the time called around here. And so uh, all our football teams have them. And uh, they're basically put up at the end zones to get a high wide shot for the players and for the uh, game tapes. And uh, there's a company over in Sealy, Texas that makes them. And so we went over and worked with them. We put our cameras on theirs and, and really came down to it. But uh, Chris, I'd be worried about putting much more than just a light PTZ up there. Uh, our camera kits are considerably heavy for our broadcast cameras, but a light PTZ might be okay to move around good bill exactly what jeff said every time i've used a tall mast if i didn't put some sort of guy wires on it and stake it down i get so much wind uh just instability if you're really lucky and get a completely calm day they can be fine but anytime the wind gets above five or six miles an hour unless you've got almost nothing up on the top of them they do move around and you get kind of a, a shaky-ish looking shot next question Next one from Josh Kaufman at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Josh said, uh, Intel Arc GPUs reportedly are the best AV1 encoders offered by dedicated hardware and the most cost effective. Would it make sense to use a pair for building custom encode decode rigs? Go ahead, John. For decode, it's not really necessary. Any high-end CPU can handle that uh, as fast as you're going to throw the video at it. Uh, for encode, an A380 is definitely going to be a great option. Uh, looking forward to seeing when YouTube and Twitch and all these other platform providers allow AV1 encoding. Uh, it should be a big, big change of uh, what kind of quality bandwidth we can get out of 1080p streams, especially with Twitch uh, having the 6 megabit limit. Yeah, given the um, number and quality of encoder decoders for point to point building i i'd be hesitant to build my a custom one like just just i would say you know like it's it's a lot of work and to keep up with it there's a there's a big business doing that right now and there i would i would stick with the ones that are already established next question jb windle in thailand comes to us and says when using zoom iso with an hdmi workflow does the panel still recommend the pluggable 4k display port adapter for the m1 mac mini any new products that have been found to work better uh, go ahead, John. I've used the pluggable. They're great. I do would re I would recommend just stepping up to the uh, Mac Studio. You're going to get a much better performance. It's going to leverage the GPU versus the CPU, um, and then you're just not going to be relying on those adapters. You can go right USB-C to HDMI into, and then you'll probably be in a much better position. Good, Mitchell. 
Doesn't the M1 only allow two monitors connected to it, even if it can, is a display port? You can get the pluggables to go further oh, than okay. that. Yeah, the, I mean, I'm, I'm testing right now the the uh, the Mini Extreme SDI ISO uh, along with a, um, a, a a Sonnet card and a and a quad uh, output, and I would just use that. <laughs> like, you know, like it, it works so well. Um, the quality of the SDI coming out, in my opinion. And the, it, it appears that there's, you know, the, so the, the, the draw on the computer is lower. Um, the quality is higher than NDI. The draw on the, you know, for the SDI to go out because the way that, that ISO is pushing out of the hardware. So you actually get higher quality and a higher frame rate at a lower um, CPU hit um, as SDI output than uh, any of the other options. Um, so, so in a high density. So you're looking at less than 50% CPU for eight outputs, um, you know, coming out of the, out of the, uh, out of the mini and it, and it's working really, really well. So, so I would, um, I would really think about if I was building something that needed more than a couple to just, just go to what works in the, in that area. And then you have to decide whether you need an interface or not. So the advantage of the extreme SDI is that it will record all those ISOs, um, and, it, and you have an interface for it. So you have, you can record and you have something to tap on. Um, if you don't need that, then the the probably the two ME the new two ME HD is probably all you need to to make all of that work. Now, next question, Bill Hops in San Jose, California, is up next. He says, using Zoom ISO V2 is HD quality determined by the host account, the Zoom ISO V2 account you log in with, or something else? Thanks. Go ahead, guy. Yeah, with Zoom, it's always whoever hosts the account. So if somebody has a 720 or 1080p enabled account, that is what the meeting will be. If they do not, you if they have a 360p normal account, you can use something like a portal or a Zoom room to bump it up. I haven't checked to see if Zoom ISO will do the bump or to see if you can pull anything bigger, but uh, it's always the host account. So you have to have a, a pro account or reach out to support to, to enable your, your account to get the higher resolution. Go ahead, Mitchell. After doing a little research, found out that if you have a pro account, uh, you can always ask for 720. You can make the case for 1080. Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana is back again this time. He asks, with the new Shadow Premium, what are people seeing with their benchmarks? Cinebench score of nearly 6,000 here. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I ran a test on Cinebench over the weekend with the new uh, Shadow Premium. So with the old one, we were getting like really, really low scores. Um, looks like um, mine came in about the same as his, about 5,952. Typically with the um, 8X G4DNs on AWS, we're getting like 15,000. So big difference. Uh, one of the things I did, to, though, to burn it in was I ran vMix, I ran uh, Livestream Studio and SRT Mini Server all at the same time over the weekend for four hours straight and was able to push out a 4K stream. It's 50 bucks a month and that and it burned it. It ran for four hours straight, no hiccups. So pretty amazing that uh, that's that cheap. I don't know how they do it. That's great. Next question. Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin says, what are your new favorite AI tools to help with production? Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. My favorite, Mark Roberts, uh, MHC Chat, which is AI control of cameras. Uh, it's not technically AI, it's tracking, but it sort of is AI. They, that's a marketing term, more so than a lot of things. It doesn't actually have AI in it, but it does have a learning algorithm that they continually tweak, and uh, it's doing fantastic for us. Uh, spoken, head, uh, like, Spoken projects and stuff like that with talking heads or someone on a stage, it's it's amazing. 
just absolutely amazing. And, and it's really good in our sports also. Um, it's it's game changing to to change your workflow like that. It really is. Yeah, I think the one that I probably use the most is, is captioning. Um, you know, so we use um, uh, uh, Simon Says AI fairly often to just get raw captures of everything to do paper edits um, out of it. It's not perfectly accurate, but it it does a pretty good job, and the timing is correct, so it's really easy for us to go back and fix. Uh, we also use it for languaging, um, and uh, you know, especially in real time. So we're also using. Uh, a variety of the EEG slash AI media tools to basically get a, uh, one of the things that we have to do is sometimes translate something in real time live into eight, 10, sometimes 12 languages as captions. And some of those languages are not captionable. So like Mandarin, Hindi, uh, a variety of those are not captionable, but the AI can do it in 708. So, so what we do is we can have one person typing, uh, they type the English because that gives us a good start. And then we have the AI do um, do the rest of it. <laughs> so so it's um, and it and it, uh, it it's been it's you know our tests have been fairly fairly effective um, at, at doing that. It's never going to be right, but the reality is, is people complain about the translations no matter who you who does it. So I've kind of given up on that problem because it's you know it's the the translations are a mess. Um, you know they're never what people want when you're doing them live, and there's always going to be somebody calling in and complaining about it. So we've kind of given up trying to be perfect on it, and we just we just try to make sure that. You get the gist. Um, next question. Next question comes from Todd Rains in Allen, Texas. And Todd asks, a few months ago, Jonas teased some new project he's working on to control Panasonic Lumis, Lumix BGH1 cameras. Any update? I know, I know Jonas isn't here. I don't, I don't know what the, uh, what the update is. Go ahead, Jeff. I don't know about Jonas's update. I don't want to speak for him. We have spoken about it. We do use the BGH1s ourselves for a lot of POV shots and and uh, great little cameras. Really highly recommend them. Uh, we're using Scarhoy tools to control them, paint them, and do everything we need. It's it's all over IP, so it's it's relatively seamless. And uh, the, and also using the Lumix Tether app, which is comes with a camera. Of course, it's free. But uh, I, I'm always looking for better tools. But the Scarhoy controller surfaces control surfaces with the core is uh, pretty powerful too. Next question. Guy Cochran comes to us next, next from Seattle and here on the panel. What two new cameras did Panasonic announce? Good guy. Yeah, at the show, these are more on the high end, but the uh, UE-150 is getting a replacement. It's the UE-160 now, and the UE-160 has a, a newer one-inch sensor. It has uh, newer motors. It also does 2110. It also has an XLR audio input. So on the back, this is the other one that got released. It's the PVL one, uh, PLV100, and this is a PL mount camera, uh, 2110, uh, 35 millimeter sensor and PL. Uh, back to the UE160 real quick. Here is that XLR audio input. There's an SFP module to do the 2110. There's also a 12G SDI out, 3G SDI, USB, HDMI, and... Uh, than NDI, of course, and SRT. So pretty sweet camera. These things are monstrous. When you see them in real life, uh, it, it, it looks small on this screen, but it's it's a big camera. And then back to the Cine Live, you can see that this is uh, the new big bad boy that they'll be releasing. Price on both of these has not been disclosed yet, but these were just announced at NAB New York. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Can't wait. Not <laughs> on order. 
can't wait. Those PTZs are just amazing. And for them to put 2110 capability in it, it's going to be game changing to integrate into a lot of different uh, studio environments that are are dead set that that's the way they want to go. It really is a great camera. It'll be interesting to see how the PL mount goes. Most of us that are doing, you know, live with cine lenses um, are using really, we're really embedded into uh, the Venice cameras because we can shade them and they, and that we can also, they have the PLs and that's what we've been using for a lot of the stuff that we're doing. Um, The new Aries Super 35 is the one that I just finished a week of shooting with. (laughs) So, and that we're not shooting, not, we weren't shading it. Um, We were just, we were doing Aerie Raw records. Um, But uh, you know, those, those are the big, the big game <laughs> are those two cameras uh, in in the world that I live in right now. Uh, that's pretty much all I'm using are one of those two cameras. And so um, it'll be interesting to see if Panasonic can wedge its way into that kind of PL world because those have really become embedded in that system. The, the 150s are great. It's it'll be interesting with the new motors whether the accuracy of the of the uh, telemetry is improved over the 150, which is already really good. Um, but there's been a little bit of sometimes when we have really slow moves on the 150s, we've had just a little bit of movement on the background. And so it'll be interesting to see if that gets locked up in the, in the 160s. Uh, next question. Sean Dunn asked this one, how do you get people to pay you in a timely manner for small jobs? How long do you normally wait to be paid and what is considered normal? Go ahead, John. Establishing your payment terms should be something that you do up front so it's well understood exactly what you're gonna do. I typically deal with net 30, next 60 day uh, terms when I'm doing anything. Um, I use FreshBooks. It allows me to just send reminders and tag people until I get paid, which is, you know, making it easy for them to send you money is going to be the easiest way to get paid. There you go, Bill. Sometimes it's tougher on the small things than it is on the bigger. Most of the time when you're working with bigger corporate payment things, they have a system. Often you have to deal with their system. So if you want net 30, but they're net 60 to 90, and some of the biggest corporations I've worked with have been like that. Although I did have a change in heart. I was working for a government agency. and they said, you know, we've changed. They're asking us to make small things, just put them on credit cards. And my contact there got a credit card. And so I ended up getting paid net now on those. As soon as I finished the work for them, uh, she and I would get on the phone and she would pay me. Was, my it, was, credit it, sub, was it sub $2,000? Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm saying small jobs, if it's on small jobs, some of them don't want to deal with all the hassle of yeah. doing things like that. And so that caused me to think you could, if you're doing a digital delivery of something, easily figure out a way to put it behind a little, um, this payment or this work will be released to you when you give me the last three numbers of the credit card or the transaction yeah. where you paid for it. I mean, you have to think outside of the box. If you have a very small business and you're working on small margins with small numbers, getting paid is life critical for your business. Enjoy so Nigel. anything you can do. Nigel. Yes, first of all, make it really easy to pay you. The harder you make it to pay you, the less likely you are to get paid. Uh, second thing is be really uh, sensitive to use of credit cards. Anything over a certain amount, you will end up paying such large fees. It may not be worth it. Third thing is, if you're having to buy something, then you need to make sure you are paid up front before you buy it. I can tell you typically, even on fairly small jobs, we operate at 50, 45, 5, which is 50% deposit, 45% before we start the work, 5% when we've done it. But very hard to do with very small jobs, I get that. But uh, if you've got a customer who doesn't want to pay you, then they're not a customer. Yeah, the, the I mean, bottom the, for, for us, the bottom line has been, or, or, when I was, especially when I was doing it with with um, with Pixelcore, 
is that if you were a new company and you were smaller than uh, Fortune 100, like literally if you were any smaller than the Fortune 100, uh, we expected an MSA. Uh, in addition to that, we expected three successful um, billing cycles um, in which you paid us up front. <laughs> you know, so, uh, and then after that, we would we would start taking put, do terms. And with corporations, we expected, I mean, we asked for 45. Um, we didn't really start nagging people until we got to 90. Um, just because it's a corporation and things take time and someone's out of town and someone's doing whatever. And if you start becoming someone who's nagging all the time, you, you just don't get called again. So, so the, um, you know, be, if you, you don't want to be a problem for, uh, for the finance department, because then they'll call and say, Hey, don't do this. Don't work with it. Cause I know that people who nagged us, I'd get a, I'd get a ping from finance that said, don't, don't hire them again. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like they're, 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 they're pinging us at 31 days, you know, and we're still waiting for payment. So, so the, um, so those are the things that, that uh, are, you know, definitely hard to make that work, but yeah, not paying us on time. You know, we would try to be as nice as we can because we want to keep on working with folks. And then we would just hand it off to finance and just say, go get it. And we always got paid. <laughs> you know, so, so it was, but it was the, the brutality that, um, our finance department at Pixacora would go into, which they would call people's bosses and then their bosses and then their bosses. And it was, it was a pretty, that was like, I don't want to work with that company again. So if I didn't get paid and I didn't want to get work, work with them, it would just, it would just ratchet up until, until I was tweeting about it. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, um, and so, and usually that only, that only had to happen once. So, so it just, but when you start deciding you're going to get the money, just remember that you're not going to work with that company again. Um, next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, up next with what activities and games particularly suited to virtual events that replace physical events? And he's thinking about receptions, anniversaries, company picnics, and so forth. What activities would take advantage of the digital and connected aspects of working virtually? Well, we don't have a lot of hands raised here. I can tell you that as someone who used to be a DJ, I tried to get rid of almost all of those events. <laughs> you know, so when I was at, when I was actually at the events, I'm not a big event person. So, um, so I don't really like most, I didn't like most of them when they started. I mostly wanted to give people a place to, you know, to me, it's how do we get people to be able to communicate and, you know, authentically see each other and be around each other and have conversations and create flow of people talking to each other. Um, but anything that, you know, for the most part was, um, I think that the things that make a difference in anniversaries and receptions are slideshows. Slideshows are really popular. Uh, slide slash short movies and everything else of the history. People love that. <laughs> you know, so, so, we, uh, so we have done a lot of those in those areas and they work pretty well. Um, other things that we've done at receptions that have been, um, I, I've talked about it. The, we've done a couple of these in both the virtual world and the physical world that I've, I think I've talked about before, but I just loved was wine tasting with cheese tastings that were, we did it once when we were physical and, and a couple times when it's virtual, where you're talking to the winery that makes the wine that you're tasting. You're eating the cheese that is made by some, somewhere in the world is made by that cheese maker. And you're at this really high end place and there's a big screen and you're talking to them. There's like 10 people that sit around the bar and they, they sip the wine and they talk about it and they go to another winery instantly, try something else. And they sit there and people, it was just, it just forms lines, you know? So, so like little wine tastings and, and, uh, and, and that type of thing was just unbelievably um, popular. Uh, and so uh, I keep on looking back at, I should do more of that, but I haven't, haven't had the opportunity to. Uh, next question. 
Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland is up next. Has anyone else experienced significant instability in recent days on Zoom 5.12.2 and OBS 28.0.2? I've restarted the programs and rebooted the i7 Intel MacBook Pro to no avail. Any suggestions for a fix? Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm trying to find a shield or something to hold up just so that nobody throws something at me for my answer on this one. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't use OBS 28 on a Mac. It's just you're asking for, for trouble, even 27, which I would back down to if it was more stable for you. I've had uh, 28 beta on this uh, Mac Mini uh, M1, and it's been not so stable. So depending on what you're doing, what activity... So here's the flame part. That's an Intel machine. You can boot camp it and you could put a stable version of OBS. OBS runs, runs great on the PC with Zoom. So that would be my answer. And I'm ducking. So no, but that's, that's the answer. Go ahead, John. Uh, the gentleman from Washington hit it out of the park. I have OBS 28 running on my PC for three weeks, solid as a rock. I can run it about 15 minutes on my Mac, Intel Mac, and it crashes the resources after 15 minutes. So Keenan, and Fenwick and have all gone back down to 27. So run a PC if you're going to run OBS. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're using OBS, they've all been pretty unstable all the way back to version one on the Mac. Next question. Paul Wallace in Cedar Creek in Texas says, with advances in AI, is there any app on the platform, on any platform, that will recognize handwritten print? Hershey? Uh, we talked about these apps yesterday. Google Lookout, Assisted Vision, and uh, Seeing AI both do hand recognition. Um, and within those two ecosystems, they uh, even offer that, I believe, with other means like with Google Chrome extensions. So you might also check that out. And uh, there are others, but it's a hit or miss. But those are two trusted ones. Next question. Eduardo Augustine, back from Panama, says, what is the best way to get more clients on streaming services and production? You know, the, for what we've done in the past when we're talking to clients about it has always been just to remind them and show them every once in a while you're sending them something like, hey, check this out. It's pretty cool. Hey, check this is out. This is pretty cool. Um, and talking about, you know, thinking about how it would make a difference for them and then looking for the opportunities where they don't have enough money or they don't have the structure to do what they want to do physically. And then you go, well, we could do this live or we could do something like that. You don't want to become too much of it. We could do everything live. You really need to think about what does the, what does it solve for the client? Not that they should just go live, but what is a problem they can't solve physically that they could solve virtually and figure out a way to, you know, create that. And, and also just making sure that they understand that, that those are, these are things that are happening more and more, you know, like the, the era of the stage is, almost over. <laughs> so, so it's, 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 uh, uh, so, you know, I think that them, you know, having them realize that uh, I just talked to a client last week that never going to an expo again, like it, you know, like it's, and it's a big company, billions, you know, and they, and they just, they, uh, their marketing person just said, no, nope, we're not gonna do this anymore. Um, and so, and that's, that's the beginning of, of those companies not doing it. Apple gave up on that a long time ago. Yeah. Go Bill. So when I was in advertising for years, uh, there were three terms that I had to learn and get comfortable with reach, frequency, and impressions. And reach and frequency is who, how many people are you talking to and how often are you talking to them? Uh, impressions are what are you leaving behind when you do those things? What, how many impressions are you making? So if you take that formula 
how often are you reaching out to the existing client base and to the potential client bases that you're thinking, oh, this industry could really use us. Let me figure out if I can figure out some names and gently and politely start building impressions with that group. What you're trying to do is get to the point when somebody says, I need, and then you enter the services that you're providing, the one name that I remember above all else is this guy or this woman or this service, and they will tend to either call you directly or at least put you in the mix of people to to test. And one one thing that that we did do while we were jumpstarting things that we were doing um, is we did, um, Mickey mentions, do a lot of it and, and volunteer if you have to. We would take our equipment. If we weren't busy, we would go do it for a nonprofit or a friend or whatever, but we would knock it out. Like a whole bunch of us would put a ton of energy into it and then we'd send it to other clients going, hey, look at this, this was pretty cool. But it has to be something that is worth doing. If, if you're gonna do it halfway, it doesn't make any difference because you can't use it as a case study. But we'd work with nonprofits and say, hey, we need to be able to use all the behind the scenes, all the other things and explain it to people. And and, if, and most of them will say yes, if you're gonna do it for free or for less money. <laughs> so, so then, and then you can use those as case studies to try to explain it. But a lot of times you just have to show people what's possible. Um, but uh, the other thing to look at is just always remember that live streaming is a counter-cyclical um, uh, business. So uh, if we actually end up having a downturn globally or in the United States, you want to ramp up uh, talking to people about it because they're going to, that generally, um, anytime the, the market goes into recession, live streaming accelerates. And that's been the case since 2000. Uh, next question. Sean Johnson in New York up next. He says, over the last few weeks, I have noticed intermittent quick black frames on panelists' video. Is this an NDI glitch? I have experienced this myself when using Zoom ISO. Any suggestions on how to fix? Not an NDI glitch. Um, it is a, there is a, um, we are some of the only people pushing, I mean, it, it, this, at least in our case, it's not NDI because we're not using it. Um, but but it is a, there is a way that we're requesting frames um, in our system um, that occasionally creates black frames. Um, it's a, I, I don't know if I can go, I'm, I'm not technically capable of going into it any deeper than that, but I have, we have had discussions with folks about it and we're requesting, it's just the way we're requesting it and the speed at which we're requesting it um, has it get ahead of the cycle a little bit in the simplest way I can explain it. Um, it is something that has been reported and is working on. And it's something that, especially with SDI or HDMI, I think nobody else is experiencing except for us, <laughs> just because we're the only ones doing what we're doing. So, uh, so, um, so it's, but so it wasn't an, a commonly known thing, but it is now identified and within the next, we hope in the next couple of weeks, it'll be solved. All right changing subjects to our second hour. And we're going to talk a little bit about jobs and jobs. How do we prepare people for the next generation of jobs? How do we, uh, you know, prepare for the next industry, um, you know, or, or, or preparing for any uh, workforce, um, you know, and, and this has been, um, you know, this is kind of a common problem that a lot of people are having now um, are going to continue to have and have had, you know, pretty much uh, for the last couple of centuries uh, of, you know, you have a pinch where you need a, a large number of people um, that are qualified and you can't actually generate that number of people. And I think it's a constant, you know, constant problem is, is that mismatch. You know, the, uh, I, I remember being at, um, at an, working in a big effects company and they were getting about 700 resumes um, a day. I'm sorry, a week, sorry, 700 resumes a week. Um, they had usually 50 to 100 openings and they could only find two or three per week, you know, to hire, you know, and what you have there is just a huge mismatch of skill sets to what you're trying to fit in. And that's when 
And you see this all the time when, you know, in, in almost every industry. Now, the, the thing that, and I'll, you know, this is open discussion, so panelists, just go ahead and raise your hand if you want to say something here before we jump into the questions. But the, um, you know, the thing that I've always approached and for the last, I mean, really for the last 30 years is that um, I start building communities around things that I think I'm going to need or, or things that I think that the industry will need less than I need, but more that this is coming and we need more people to be able to do it. So how do we get together and build, build that up over time? You know, the, when we go out and do recruiting or we, or we start hiring people from other companies, you know, if you, if you think about that in a, at a human scale rather than a job scale, you would call that hunting and gathering. You know, we're out there getting berries that are already that are already there. We're out getting animals that are already there. That's hunting and gathering, um, uh, and that, and that's how everybody starts everywhere. And that's how that's how we started as as human beings. But civilizations are built on farming. You know, and and so the thing is, is we have to figure out how we are able to. You know, we need to be keep keep on thinking about this from a job perspective of how we develop people from the ground up. You know, of I don't know how to do this to someone who's who's we're going to get a much better group of people over time, but you have to start thinking in years and decades, not necessarily in weeks and months. And that's the, that's the hardest part that, you know, and so you're hunting and gathering while the wheat is growing. (laughs) So, so the, uh, you know, um, but, but you have to figure that out because we have to figure out how do we develop that? And it's what we, it's what I did with physical teams in the nineties. It's what we did with pixel core in the, in the aughts and and what we're doing now in, in office hours is how do we, um, you know, uh, help people move forward from wherever they are. Some of them are advanced, some of them are beginning and help them moving forward. And as imperfectly as we can, you're still trying to figure out how to actually do it. Go ahead, Nigel. I think one of the hardest things at the moment, at least we're finding, is is bringing in uh, younger people to do work that people who've been in the job longer think is the right thing for them to start doing. And typically that means uh, physical, dirty, difficult work for which they're not paid very much. And there are just not people out there who want to do that, which is one of our challenges. So I think you have to reimagine when you bring someone in in a very junior level and uh, think through what, how you're going to keep them interested because the people who've been there for 20 years think they should spend three months or three years doing terrible jobs and people just won't do it anymore. Yeah. There you go, Jeff. I would agree also with Nigel about that. Dirty Jobs is probably one of the best TV shows for showing exactly where our decline in, in people that are working and what they want to do. Um, it's, it's not like what I do uh, in, in video production and, and live sports production and such. It's not like anything we do is that crazy. Uh, we're not cleaning out septic systems. Uh, it's not exactly glory work, though. You are pulling cables and schlepping equipment here and there, but it's not the end of the world. And, and it's definitely... Um, in many ways rewarding uh that some people are, are always looking for that reward side of it uh you're you're successful whenever you have a successful uh a successful production and such it's a great feeling but i do feel like that the the part that we're really fighting right now is that the younger people that we need in the business in the industry are just not interested they just don't think this is a job and don't care and and I've had conversations with them, a few that were like, oh, yeah, this is something I, after we talk, they're like, yeah, maybe not. No, no. And, but there's not enough people coming in in order for us to call the people that aren't interested out and actually end up with people that are really interested in making this industry a living. 
and not everybody can be a YouTube influencer. And that's instant gratification at its worst right now. Good, good Bill. Well, all of these things, I mean, I remember my history growing up and learning to do physical labor at some point. I think there's less of that. You know, esports doesn't give you the same uh, training that real physical sports do. I played a little bit of JV football in high school. I, it, I did not take to it, but it did help me understand the necessity to put out physical en energy over time. And I can't tell you how useful that's been to me through my whole career when I've had to get out and get cameras assembled on location. And I think if I hadn't had those days when I was going down the wrong path, but a useful path, I wouldn't be able to do the jobs that I did later where I had to think more, but I also had to physically manage more. Um, I think this is going to be tough. I mean, generations get ready for what they see happening and possibilities for themselves. And um, I'm not sure that what they're seeing out there matches the jobs that are going to be, which is, I think, why the immigration issue is so difficult, because that often is where people come in who are willing to do the kinds of things that the people who don't who see themselves as above those carry the camera for three hours jobs come from. So it, it, this is not just national, it is truly global, and we're seeing the effects of it everywhere around yep. the world. I just think of the number of things I would go into right now that I'm looking to the future, and I would be sitting in a chair doing Swift programming or something if I really wanted to make my sure I had a career ahead of me, because that is a coming technology rather than a dying technology. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges right now, and we have to focus more and more on training than we did in the past, because specifically because of minimum wage. You know, as minimum wage goes up, we take less, a lot, we, I can take less risks. <laughs> so, you know, and it's not just the minimum wage, but the minimum wage goes up and then all the, the, the stuff around it goes up, you know, the, that's there. And so what you end up doing is you end up requiring people to know more um, to, to hire than you did before. And so it's putting more pressure on training systems because people have to come out further cooked than they did before. Because, you know, at first, I, you know, it used to be at, you know, eight bucks an hour, I just throw people at things, you know, like, like, we'll just figure this out and we'll train them and they can be kind of useful and everything else. There's some point, point break. Now I don't hire, I mean, in, in the, in the events that I do today, um, I don't, you know, I, I think that we don't pay less than 20 or 25 bucks an hour for the most part, 15, 15 at some, at, at, in some cases for long-term stuff, but for a day, a day person coming in for the day, they're getting paid more significantly more than that. So, um, the uh so anyway so that that's a different um you know structure um than than what we than what we typically have but i think that that puts a lot of challenge i know that for when pixel was getting started we did a, had a lot of people that we bring in from students they'd be uh, interns and then we you know oftentimes make them un, you know paid interns or paid production assistants but those are minimum wage jobs you know and a lot of them you know and we were able to they were able to be minimally effective you know so while we were trying to figure stuff out they, a lot of them now work at facebook and salesforce and google and other places like that but they we weren't ever going to give them a chance at 15 dollars an hour and so i think that that's you know that's a it's a challenge you know for um the industry right now is to is to not be able to figure that out um to, to make that work um, let's go ahead and jump into the questions Peter Rosado in Las Vegas, Nevada has our first one this morning, and uh, it is panels thoughts on, and he's got a link there to a USA Today com story about workers, remote workers returning to office jobs as the market cools. Uh, so that's next. Good, Nigel. Yeah, so if I look out my window, if I could look out my window, I would see two very large office blocks owned by two very famous um, San Francisco or Bay Area based 
at companies who you might think are going to be very much into people working remotely. Uh, when these office blocks are finished, my guess is they are going to have to fill them. They probably paid and got tax exemptions. They probably got all sorts of conditions to bring those people into the market, and they are not going to get away with leaving them empty. So I think you're going to find a lot of corporations will force people back into, into buildings because they are stuck with financial obligations. I think the second uh, most important thing is if you are more important to your company than they are to you, you have the rights and the privileges to do really work where you want. If, however, their paycheck is more important to you than they are, then you are going to do what they tell you to do. And that's just a reality I think people are going to have to get used to. Finally, I think remote management is really a management problem. And many people think it's about work. It's actually about the lack of training and understanding by the managers for how to motivate and measure and keep people who are remote uh, enabled. I guess one more last point. Um, if you're trying to build a career, out of sight can often be out of mind. So it's really hard to build a career if your boss or your boss's boss never sees you. Yeah, it, it, it's a... Um... It, it really is a lot of people like it, it, in a com companies want to be at the headquarters because that's your up if you're trying to be upward mobile uh, within a company being near the where the executives are does make a difference as Nigel said um, I think that one of the things that I think we're seeing with a lot of industries right now is if you think about what used to be you know like this right this is the this is what the industry was what COVID did was this it ate away all of this stuff so on the surface it kind of looks the same might have eased it out, but all of this down here is negative space. <laughs> you know, and there's an enormous amount of pressure coming. This comes from events, from remote work, everything else is pushing down on this. There's going to be some point where it severs, you know, and, and it's going to, that little thing overhanging is just going to drop off. And it may not happen all in one, one, one week, but it's going to happen. Um, you know, people are not going to keep working at, you know, are not going to keep going to the um, their offices the way that they did before. Even hybrid is really falling, is, is, it's a fallback for these companies that they can't get people to come every single day, but they can try to get them to come at least two or three days a week. And that's, if you look at that article, nearly half of the businesses are either remote or hybrid at this point. I, I imagine a lot more of them were fully, they're, they're, they're somehow trying to package hybrid into, well, they're coming back to the office. Well, they're coming back to the office some of the time, um, you know, but I think that that's going to be harder. There's definitely jobs that you have to be at the office. Um, they're highly secure. They're secret. They require hardware. They require, you know, people working in labs, um, retail, all those things. But I think that you're going to find that um, what I, talking to people that I know working at these companies, they really look at, and most of them are working remotely, if they got called back, it's not that they say that they're going to, this one has like, oh, you can't quit. It's not that they're going to quit. It's just that they're now updating all of their LinkedIn stuff. They're they're flicking the little switch that says they're recruitable. They're you know looking at they're, they're, they get up in the morning having breakfast, looking at all the LinkedIn job opportunities that are showing up. They're applying for other things, and that's a horrible state for your your employees to be in. If they're not happy with where they're at, they're you know there's um, and and they're mobile. It just puts an incredible amount of instability on on the on your workforce and and that makes it harder to do training because if you are you know there's a, f a famous saying i don't know where it came from that you know a cfo goes to a ceo and says what if we train all these people and they leave and and the ceo says what if we don't and they stay <laughs> so so that you know like you have to train people you have to be bringing them up and if they feel like they have upward mobility um you know you're gonna you're gonna be in a much better situation upward mobility as well as some flexibility and i think people now have a new 
sense of what that flexibility is. Um, and I think that that's, that's where it's going to be very hard is that they, they went from, you know, the whole model, the game was you do K through 12, you do university and you quickly move into a, into a business before you realize that life could be a different way. <laughs> and so you've had a very structured life since you were five. And suddenly we had two years of unstructured and, you know, the, the people realized that they were, they're, they're spending a lot of their lives in their car. You know, and I think that that's the, I think that's going to be a hard thing to, for people to keep on getting over. Go ahead, Bill. Also, I, I'm always mindful of the fact that disruption messes the people down the org chart, but it also messes with the people at the top of the org chart. A lot of these people who are CEOs, you know, went through Harvard Business School and they they did all the right things and they, they were conditioned to manage in a set of circumstances that are now gone or at least under attack by all sorts of things. And they're flailing a little bit, you know, it's like they understand this process where everybody's working in a big tower and you can do all your communications internally and you're going to put together the softball team to, mm -hmm. to build all, you know, all sorts of techniques to help run the organization. But then the bottom falls out of the way you used to do it, well, and you have to change the entire organization. It is not easy, and I don't think a lot of them have all the tools that they yeah. necessarily should to think about it the correct way. Yeah, the uh, the funny thing is, is that we, we deal with a lot of um, you know C-suite folks, and what we're always amazed by is how little they want to spend on their webcams. You know, they just want to open up their laptop or jump on their iPad. And, and these are people who spend thousands of dollars on their suit and hundreds or thousands of dollars on their shoes and have the right car and have all the things. And they, they work out every day to make sure that they, have, they present themselves well in meetings. And because and if you go to a C-suite on a Fortune 10 company, I mean, they oftentimes look like they're in another race of people. <laughs> look like they are, they've been refined and, and uh, they're manicured and they're, you know, they've, they've built all this up and somehow they've been, all the stuff that gave them those advantages have been taken away and they're not replacing them with anything. They just want to jump on. And so they sound bad. They look bad. They're badly lit. And they just think that that's the way it is. And they don't, and now some companies have realized, um, that the camera and the mic and everything else make a difference and they're investing in that, but they, they can't figure, the other ones can't figure out why their employees aren't listening to them. So they want them all to come back physically because they can't understand why they don't have the gravitas that they had before when they could create that in their office. <laughs> like they could have an office next to them. You know, there's some, the, the CEOs that are the most forward thinking um, in some of the you know, really big companies have studios that sit next to their office. So their office is there. And there's a big old studio with professional level cameras and professional level switching and everything else. And that is a studio that sits right next to them. Literally, there's a door from their office to just walk into that studio. It's all prepped and ready to go. And they go in and do their presentations. And sometimes those studios look like a studio. Sometimes they look like a kitchen. Sometimes they look like a, you know, they, they look like a lot of different things depending on what they want. And sometimes there's different walls that are a different way that they want to present what they're doing. Um, and, and those are the ones that really understand it, that understand that they're projecting their image now through the screen, you know, and I know we're getting a little off su subject, but, but you have to have that, you have to start at the top and have people believe that they should follow you, um, before you can get them, you can really attract them and, and get them working. Uh, next, next question. Comes from Paula Wallace in Austin, Texas. Again, what are the job prospects for over 65 tech workers? What skills would be most useful to learn? And can a 65-year-old plus person break into audio, video streaming, and so forth? Good, Nigel. 
So I'm not sure I know exactly what the best skills are to learn, but my guess for most of those people is you already have a set of skills. They're probably soft skills. They're probably skills that are around organizing. They're around understanding. They're around helping. And really working out how to utilize those skills may be the best thing you can do. I can tell you there is a market for people who can move the ball down the field, who can get things done, who can help other people achieve their objectives. So if I was, well, I guess I am at the higher end of the market in terms of age, I'm much more interested in people who can focus on that. I don't think they necessarily need to learn how to code. They can do, that's not a problem. But they've probably got skills. They've probably achieved things in their life. And I think most of us need those sorts of people around us. Hey, go, Jeff. Well, I, I guess my company is a perfect example. I have a 63-year-old that works in my company. I'm not 63. Uh, by the way, but he works in my company is one of my best employees and he works circles around the 20 somethings that are working for me because he has the experience and it's not that he's technically more experienced or, or has, it's just work ethic and it's just something that's we're missing without a doubt. But I agree that, that, uh, anybody can learn any, any dog can learn a new trick and, uh, even old dogs still have plenty of time to work in the, in the industry without a yep. doubt. Okay, John. One of the best techs on my team happens to be uh, 65. Uh, we'll be retiring here in the next couple of weeks. Really sad to see him go. One of the most knowledgeable, friendly, trains everybody else around him. Like I would pay to have tons more like him uh, than a bunch of people with lack of experience who do, don't have that customer service that he offers. Good, Bill. And as somebody who is well past technical retirement age and is still doing what I did five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago, reasonably successful at it, the, the, the thing is, it's kind of a mindset. And, you know, if you decide you're ready to, quote, retire, you're going to change your behavior to the point where you don't do the things that got you success in the first place. If you don't have that mindset, you're going to constantly be looking for new things to learn, new things to engage with, how to get ahead of the curve rather than behind it. And I just look around and I see people in my same age category and I go, man, they really look like they're old and, and giving up on it. And then I see another group of people who they're not. They're just not. So I think it's a force of will at some point to decide how long you're going to keep pushing and, you know, what's the appropriate level for you. And so far, I remember my mom hit 100 and was in pretty darn good shape. So thank you, mom, for the genetics and the rest of that. But, you know, we see people out there who can be effective, can be robust, can be engaged way up into their 90s and others who just can't. I don't know what the magic sauce is. Maybe it's yep. genetic, but maybe it's something else. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that we've done, and we've had um, a, a lot of folks that are, you know, I hire, I've hired a lot of folks that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, and what they come with, what they uh, arrive with oftentimes is an incredible base of knowledge, you know, that, that they can apply and, and they know things that, of where things came from and why we call things what they are. And a lot of them have been technicians out of ILM, you know, <laughs> so, so these are folks that, you know, built, you know, wired up the first Steadicam for, uh, you know, for Return of the Jedi and, you know, but other ones were ones that, you know, were the, had the first video beta cams in Asia and, and, and were working on it. And the, the knowledge that they have around all of those things, they've seen all of those things. And it just, some, some of it takes years to absorb. 
When you mix a handful of those folks into your team, wow, does it explode? You know, because you now have people with an incredible base of knowledge, and then you have a lot of young crew that are learning how to do it. And then you have the key people that are making sure that it actually goes through. And if you could have young folks that are that are learning how to do it or new folks, I would say young because they, they can be new up, you know, <laughs> at any age. Um, but you then you have core people that are going to be, you know, make it work. And sometimes the core people are these more, um, you know, advanced folks that have done this for for decades. Um, you know, when you can mix and match that, and it, it actually makes it a much more fun experience to be in. Um, you know, and, and, the, and, you know, getting people who are more experienced, there's an energy that people who are new and asking questions. The key though, is to making sure that the people who are coming in that are advanced feel safe and also feel like they're ready to share and that aren't just bugged by everyone asking them questions. Because if they're, if they're curmudgeons and don't want to answer any questions or feel like that's somehow encroaching on their ability to get work, then we get rid of them. <laughs> like, like, like that's not, that's not, they're not useful to me. You know, they, you know, part of the why they're there is to guide the new, the new folks forward um, to make that work. Go ahead, uh, John. Paul, oh, one word, plastics. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work. All right, next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Do you think that as geographically distributed work becomes more accepted in more fields, the return to office wave will be a relic of the past? Go ahead, Jeff. The first time I read that, I actually, yes. Yeah, it answers your question is yes. But the first time I read that, I actually was thinking more of our industry. Uh, we've been doing distributed workflows for years, well before COVID. And so for, for me, it's I just don't even think about it. There's still some people, some clients that we work for recently. Uh, I worked with uh, Mark for instance, uh, on a show, hey, we could do this remotely, save you some money for travel, except no, was it was no conversation whatsoever. There are still plenty of companies out there that want people on site. And whether that's a live production or in the office, they feel like they just can't adjust to something new and they can't deal with it. So we have to make our changes ourselves. Go ahead, John. One thing I would make sure that we just think about and consider is when it comes into um, dedicated workspaces at home so people can segregate their work and home life. A lot of people aren't having that and featuring a lot of burnout that's coming from that, uh, as well as creating spaces like we have in after hours where people can get together and it's not meeting after meeting to get communication happening. There's just a central spot we can jump in. If I have a question, someone can be there for me to help. Those are the things that I think that a lot of people haven't implemented. And there's a reason why you're seeing a lot of pullback into the office is you're not getting as efficient as you are next to each other if you're not leveraging or creating systems that kind of work together. Good, Bill. Also, in the creative arts, there's always been this on-location mentality, particularly about movie and content making, which is that we are all going to gather together in this remote location and we are going to work together side by side, shoulder to shoulder, to get this thing done. And then at the end of the job, we're going to go our separate ways. And I hope I see some of these people when we get together on another shoot or another project later, but you're never sure of it. So I think a lot of people who are really good at the creative arts have... Uh, learn to accept that kind of temporary community that forms, gets the job done, and then goes away as just part of normal process. It's such a superpower to be able to work um, with remote teams because you're now picking people based on the best people that are for that job rather than the best people you can find in San Francisco or New York, LA. You know, my, you know, the, the production I'm doing that I'm working, one of the productions I'm doing right now, Color is being done in New York. 
the audio is being done in the Philippines, in Manila. Um, the uh, edit is being done, I think, in I think it's Kansas. <laughs> you know, so, so the uh, um, I apologize to to the editor <laughs> if that's the if that's not the not not the right state. But I don't really think of it that way. I just think of the people that we needed for that job. They were, you know, and I'm able to get the best people that 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 I want to use as opposed to the people. Now, there are physical, we had to shoot it somewhere. So there were people that I needed, you know, for that location. But even then, you know, one of the things we we try to build all of our systems so that they can be remotely access, accessed. So, you know, I want to like, and this has been, this has not been since COVID. This has been since 2000, for me, 2012, 2014, when we started having it where we have experts. I just need to be able to, I don't need an expert. Like on a sunny day, this system will work fine. On a rainy day, I need someone to reach into that and change, literally change the routing, change the thing, change whatever. And, and so um, when we get into that, that ability for someone to log in from Georgia or log in from Manila to fix some audio problem or, or to you know, make it work, um, it, it's a very, very powerful. Um, you know, and it's just really hard to find it. And so you, you know, people who aren't thinking that way are really holding themselves uh, back. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity to keep on getting better, but you have to figure out how to meet other people. And, you know, that's part of the, the tool of what we're using office hours is being on this panel, get you in front of people <laughs> so people know what you know. Uh, being in after hours or, or on the projects in the back end, let you work with people and let them know who you are and what you know. And and that that is, I know it's hugely useful for me because <laughs> I'm looking for people. Um, and uh, But it's also useful for a lot of other folks to, to, to figure those things out. Uh, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, says, uh, had a few careers, electrician, welder, sonar tech, IT admin, photographer, videographer, cameraman, production coordinator, and live streamer. It always required going into some form of debt. How do we decrease that debt load for the kids coming up now? I go ahead, Jeff. I don't think it needs to include debt. That's the whole thing is we need people that are just ready to work right now. All you have to do is email me. And that's it. You know, I'm being serious, guys. I'm being dead serious. It's like, we just need people to show up and want to learn. That's all you have to do. You don't have to go to school to learn something in order to get a job. There are plenty of places that you could go get a job and have a very good career, a very capable career, something that pays well, which is not always the motivation, but still you could have a very good career just getting started and just applying to businesses that are looking, whether they're in your area or not in your area, it doesn't matter. You just have to apply and just say, hey, I'd like to learn this. There you go, Bill. I do think that the internet and the connectivity of the globe and all the people in it and their, their being able to be found and addressed has changed a lot of the fundamentals of education. You used to have to go to a building, pay a lot of money to get access to the professor whoever that was and the rest of that. And now there's so much expertise that's distributed across the internet through all of these um, services. And you know everybody here knows what they are. And so if you are self-motivated, if you have an interest in something that is marketable, all the information is out there. It's just up to you to malleate it, learn it, and then make that contact with somebody like Jeff who is looking for you and so you can do it around that system. I'm not saying there is any value in traditional education. There still is in some areas, but it is not the necessity that it used to be in terms of getting gatekeeper access to the information you need to build a career. Yeah, I, I didn't, um, getting started, I didn't really, a lot of those were 
debt in a different way. I wasn't making money. I just was willing to volunteer. How I got into computer graphics was I walked into a company that sold electric image in Form Z, which was back in the 90s was $7,500 and $2,500 or $3,500. And I couldn't afford that. So I just said, I'll answer questions for free if you let me ac give me access to the computer. And, um, and so I sat there every weekend and nights and um, and you know, everything, just learning how to do it and learning how to figure that out. And that's what got me to, you know, Lucasfilm. <laughs> so, uh, but I didn't borrow money. I just spent a lot of time, you know, on it. Um, and so, so the, um, so anyway, so I think that, that you can definitely do those, but you have to be willing to volunteer in certain areas. And again, we're, you know, we provide a lot of those opportunities here just to, to get involved with things that are already happening, um, to, to kind of figure out, you know, what's going to be next. Yeah, go ahead, John. I think a lot of people also learn a lot in house of worship. If you can find a large house yeah. of worship near you, there's a lot of great equipment, a lot of real world experience, and usually always looking for volunteers. I think that is a great place to kind of plug in. Um, you'll also find people who maybe be doing this professionally and then can find a, a person like Jeff who's looking for help. And you can kind of move up through the ranks that way. Anything to get your hands on the, the equipment that you're going to be using professionally um, is going to get you way further ahead than anything that you're going to learn in a classroom setting. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> uh, I always tell when, when I'm working with uh, folks in house of worship, I've been brought in a couple of times to look at, look at a house of worship of, diff of all different backgrounds. First thing I say is just get good, good equipment. It's worth it. It's worth every penny is to get, you know, good cameras and good, you, you want to save money on the hardware, but I'm, but I'm like, what, what you save on the hardware you pay for in not having as many volunteers. Like you, you give them a bunch of good cameras and a good mixer and a good, you know, high end, what they feel is high end tools. Um, and they come in and you have someone there that's capable of training them to use it and have them feel like they're successful. You'll have a long list of people who want to who want to play there. Uh, if you get a lot of the least expensive things possible and put them in the back, it's a lot harder to get people to show up every Sunday or every Saturday or every Friday, depending on what you're doing. Um, next question. Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri, comes up with this one. How would someone change careers into tech or video production when they're currently in an unrelated job? job field. I go ahead, Bill. Well, it, okay. So I'm going to do two sides of this. Uh, first, if you're passionate about it, you need to just find contacts, get around the people who do this kind of stuff, spend all your time online trying to have, build as much expertise as you can that you, eventually you're going to get in front of somebody. You can demonstrate your expertise and that's kind of how they first give you an opportunity. Parallels exactly what Alex said. He built expertise first, then he put themselves around people in that industry and they recognized his expertise and brought him on board to contribute. The other thing though I'm going to say is that self-assessment is also very important. I can't tell you the number of guys when they found out that I was a producer of video work who said, I've always wanted to do that. And I'd say, well, here's the kind of a thing that you can do. Go get a camera and, and shoot some stuff. And I would come back, uh, see them a year later, and I said, you know, what camera did you buy? Oh, I'm still trying to figure out what camera is going to be best. I'm spending all my time online, and I'm looking at the Canon. I'm looking at Sona. And, you know, I, I just realized they are unable to commit and if they had a year before, instead of worrying about whether the Sony or the camera, Canon was the best camera, if they had just bought a camera and went out shooting, they would be a year ahead in learning to do that job. So they had this form of uh, paralysis by analysis where they thought about what they were going to do instead of just doing it. And they didn't have a tolerance for making mistakes and growing through them. And I would say to myself, they are never going to make the transition into this job. Their skill set doesn't fit. 
So if you do have a skill set that fits, go for it. But be ruthless in your self-analysis and say, if you don't, if people are telling you you're not detail-oriented, then you probably do not want to be in one of the fields here where you must be detail-oriented to succeed. And and I, I just I need to tell one story about that, just just from what, what Bill said. It, it relates to my, me and my daughter. I have an Ambira. I don't know if it's around here, but I have this. It's a little thumb piano that comes out of, of Zimbabwe, and I bought it, and it's authentic. And I got a couple lessons, and I know how to play a couple traditional songs on it. And I kept on it. But then it just sat for years on my desk I, as a reminder of I could go play this, but I just didn't get around to it. My daughter on a Saturday picked it up and started banging on the keys until she realized what the, what the chord structure was and then just started playing pop songs on it. <laughs> like, like within like the time she picked it up to the time that she uh, was playing songs that I recognized was like four hours, you know? And so, uh, you know, and, and, and it was just such a lesson for me to not get stopped by feeling like I have to be ready for something or I have to take lessons and just pounding it out. Now she has a lot of technical skill when it comes to music. So she understands what she's looking at, but still I was kind of amazed and I was, I was like, well, that's a real call to the call to the field. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. I don't have a long story to tell. I just have a simple thing is reach out to somebody in the industry. That's it. All you have to do is reach out to somebody in the industry that's looking to hire and you'd be surprised about how available they would be to help you steer you, mentor you to get the right direction that you need to go there's nothing wrong with switching fields nothing mm -hmm. at all and yeah, the, the, the information the base information is out there and hopefully you will have somebody that you could link up with that would be willing to take you on as a padawan or, or intern mm -hmm. type to help bring you up to speed it's just being there and eager to learn and the, and the main thing is is don't underestimate the power of just being around the conversation so you you know pa is a great job <laughs> because you hear a lot of things you hear people talking you know be useful be in the right place at the right time you know be you know and, and a lot of times a lot of people start as pas and it's not because you're going to learn how to move things or do things but the, a, a really good pa becomes a coordinator and a really good coordinator becomes a producer and or becomes a teleprompt operator or becomes a camera operator but you have to hear the conversation and understand what's actually going on when you come in as a pa we have very low expectations other than you're going to be quiet you're going to be ready and, and alert when you're going to, when we, when we look at you, you better be looking at us <laughs> and you're not, you know, fiddling with something. You're not on, you know, not on Facebook, not on other things like that. You're attentive. You ask questions, but only when it's comfortable to ask questions, you're not asking them all the time. Um, and you are, you know, on time assertive that those are, those are like basic life skills. <laughs> That's all we expect from a PA is basic, strong, uh, life skills. That's the easiest way to get into the door. And then people like you and then they go, oh, I'm going to hire that person again. I'm going to hire that person again because, and you, you you may spend time as a PA, but it's a really great place because you see a lot of different parts of the of production um, and you see those things. Now, the way I, I've always gotten into industries is to find a way to serve that industry. You know, so I'm interested in this thing. I want to get there and I'll do it for free. <laughs> so, so the, uh, and I'll, and I'll figure out a way to do it. Um, I, I had a, uh, um, there was a guy in, uh, in, we were doing a production in Minneapolis. And this guy had the craziest jib I've ever, I mean, not jib, te a technocrane. Uh, he had a technocrane. And um, and I asked him what, this is this is just another approach to this. I asked him how do you, you know, what is it, what has he done in the film industry? He goes, oh, I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. He said, I just, I'm, I've retired. He's in mid thirties. And he said, I retired. And I, I felt if I got a really nice technocrane that people would just 
bring me on to set so I could, I could learn how to use it and learn how to, you know, this is the thing I wanted to do. And he, by the way, he uh, invented these little strips for your nose. <laughs> so anyway, so he didn't have to work anymore. Um, but he had this big old red techno crane or whatever it was. And, and sure enough, people bring him on to little films all the time because it was free free to have a techno crane and he got to learn I, I i haven't followed up with him i should find out if he's still in it but he was it was what he was passionate about so getting something that everybody else doesn't have is another way to to look at that if you can afford if you can afford that pas are great to get started um you know i bought a sony f950 uh, in 2005 for a lot of money eighty five thousand dollars used and um uh, and I got into a lot of productions because of it, because it was the only 444 camera in Northern California. So, so there's a lot of, if you can do something special, you can also, um, you know, get yourself uh, invited, but people still have to know it exists. Um, next question. Chris Widener, Lafayette, Indiana, up with the next one. I've had a lot of push from a university contact about taking unpaid interns. I personally won't take an intern unless I can pay them. Is it just the local university or is this an industry-wide standard of not doing paid internships? I go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think you have to be careful in different markets, different parts of the world, uh, paid and non-paid becomes an issue uh, and you need to pay people for their time. Uh, in principle, I would always tell you to pay an intern. Um, if you don't pay someone, then nowadays you get exactly what you've paid for, which is not very much. Uh, but I do know that there are many universities and many educational establishments that are really desperate to give their people work experience because they think it will give them a competitive advantage when they go into the market. So some of them are offering, well, you know, free intern, you know, on the boundaries. I would I would avoid that, always pay the people that work for you. Um, and But it's a great way to get young people in if they're willing to work. Good, Bill. The university is selling a product. That product is education. They've been asked by people, how do I get real-world experience? Trying to place interns is the way they're satisfying their marketplace uh, for real-world experience. And they don't care about the financial part of it. They just want to be able to say on their website, you have a chance of getting a real-world experience by coming through our educational program and paying us to help you do that. Uh, it, it's overt. It's open. That's how it's been going on for a long time. But I agree with everybody that you know, most of us who are in production get somebody sending something into our structured organization who knows nothing about anything and bringing them up to the point where they can be useful is a cost. So taking on an intern and not paying them because they've demonstrated that they can bring value to the set is a risky thing. And a lot of sets just won't do it. Uh, I don't want anybody on my set that isn't going to contribute, period. Good, Jeff. I've had a lot of experience with this over the years, more in the production side, uh, sound and lighting production side. That was a very common thing a friend of mine was doing, and I could never get my head around it. Why would anybody show up and work for free? Because he was, they were working. They were like doing rigging and, and stuff and, and lighting setups and such that was much more labor intensive than our video world. Uh, but I, any interns we've ever had, we call them part-time employees because that's what they are. Where they're they're making us money because they're being productive, and we're training them in a way that they are productive. We're not just having them sit and watch. Yeah, we've definitely. Uh, I know with Pixelcore we had we had a partnership with uh, Sonoma State, and we would bring people in, and they were unpaid interns, and then we would typically convert some of them to paid interns. <laughs> so basically, once they finish their, now they're getting graded on it. They're getting credits for it. They have to get credits for it, by the way. Like, so for this to happen, you have to figure out what the structure is. It's not that people are just coming and working for you for free. They are, they're coming there and they're getting 
um, a uh, they're getting credits for that um, for that experience, and so that is part of their curriculum. And you are providing them a service to do that. They're not working for you for free. You are giving them a place to learn, you know, and learn pretty much what they can't learn in university. Because the reality is, is the universities are not built for giving people production experience um, for the most part. Some of them are. Some of them do a pretty good job of of doing films and having you know NYU and and other ones. You know, the the Tisch School is going to send them out with cameras and so on and so forth. But there's still something about working in the real world that is. Um, going to be different than than those types of, um, of environments. And so just nugging through it and learning what it takes to, to do menial jobs and put those things together. But what we would do is oftentimes we would bring in eight, you know, six to eight um, folks from Sonoma State. They'd be unpaid interns. At the end of that, we oftentimes hire some of them, three or four of them, as paid interns. And then, then they became, uh, some of them would become production folks for us. And that was a pretty successful model for us to find new people. So it is a pretty, um, it's not, them. again, remember that it, it, they're not just working for free. They're getting credit, you know, for, uh, you know, for that. And it's part of their school. And if they're not working for you, they're going to work for somebody else because they need those credits and they can't get the credits without actual industry um, experience because that's how the structure, and it's very smart for schools. I mean, in my opinion, the way to teach, teach people production is to, I, I wouldn't bother, you know, I have a, bigger dream, which is to build something that costs a fraction of the cost and keeps people not working on projects for other clients, but working on projects for other people that are watching them. Um, and, uh, and so that's, uh, but I think that trying to figure out a way to lower, um, uh, you know, lower the cost of learning how to do this is, is a key to, for our industry. We have to get past someone having to spend a hundred thousand dollars on an education that they could have learned on site. You know, and, and, and so this is the in-between, but, and I think that they're one of the, the big things that isn't fair is that people have to go to university to get the internship. You know, I think that that's the, in the way our labor laws work right now is, is a huge advantage to college, uh, attendees as, you know, college students, as opposed to uncolleged students, um, because they get to, they get to do the unpaid internships. They get that foot in the door that you can't get otherwise, you know, and it's a, it's, it's. It's not fair. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Again, what jobs will still remain in fully robotic factories with humanoids walking around? Go ahead, John. The people installing the robots, fixing the robots, and programming them. For a while. For a while. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jeff. That was exactly it. Mean, somebody's got to program it. I, we always had a joke in the club days uh, is that you put up intelligent lights, but you still had to tell them what to do. So are they really intelligent? Not really. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the issue really is, is that uh, it, it, there's still a lot of limitations to what a robot can do. And I think we vastly underestimate what a brain, what, what our brain or our mind does. And, and I think that people who keep on telling us that the, the robot overlords are going to be there and that, and that doesn't account for any kind of, you know, you lose a bunch of power and now what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, so, so the, uh, so the, there's a lot of things that, um, I think that, I mean, I think that I, I will say that I often tell people that if you say your job is mindless, uh, then you better get a new one soon because that job won't be around. So mindless jobs that are just rolling through it, those are probably going to go away. You're probably right. But the ones that, so you want to keep on thinking about how you and your kids and your family are, are doing things that require, that hurt your head, you know, you have to think about and that, that are, that are, you have to learn every day. Those are the things that stay relevant. You're absolutely right. The things that you're, you can do a lot of different things while you're doing it probably are not the things you want to get paid for. Next question. 
Next one from Harshid Travidi in uh, Daytona Beach. And here on the panel, these days we find more jobs available in the consulting space or gig economies. What are the advantages and disadvantages of this type of job versus, say, a job with a W-2 or salary? Well, the stability of a salary is nice, but you know you always also you always want to be careful of that. That's the stability can suck you in and keep you there, <laughs> because you know it's hard to give up that uh, you know that that constant income. So, uh, but I think that that's the you know the big advantage the the doing a having your own company um, or your own ability to do gig work lets you scale your income much more effectively if you can get out there and do it. Good, Bill. Well, also, uh, this disassociation of jobs from geography, I think, is going to continue apace. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people I know I'm, I'm really shocked at who have considered moving offshore from the United States to someplace. We we're talking about Bernie, um, our, our friend who's a longtime Los Angeles grip truck owner and things like that, who's in Turkey now and having a great time. And I'm seeing all his posts. And he, even though he was in a job where you think you need a physical asset and a physical place to survive, he decided that at this point when he was going into retirement that he could uh, move into a different part of his career and he didn't have to be any particular place. I know that I'm sitting in San Diego. I could be sitting any place on the planet and do what I do day in and day out. And I think a lot of people are realizing that. And that's why Alex has talked a good little bit about the migration into places that have less cost of living as long as they have high level connectivity. And it presents more options for more people to work out of more places. I do think that's going to be a trend that's going to keep going for the rest of uh, human history. I, I work with a lot of folks that are working out of their apartments. They're working out of, they're, they're somewhat mobile. They're living in the middle of the country. Um, there's a huge advantage, you know, to, to if you can get a hold of that kind of work, um, to work as much as you want, but be able to turn it on and off. You don't have to show up somewhere just to show up. So um, Roscoe points out 401k matching. As someone who's never really done 401k, I don't really have a, I don't have a consciousness to it. But um, but I but I know that that's a that's a key advantage of having a job for a long period of time. Um, the uh, th I think that um, the flexibility is what most people go for. Is is what they want is to have that flexibility. You just have really have to be keep your ducks in order when it comes to, you know, how you're going to manage your money. I, the people who do the, this the best, in my opinion, are people who are putting a lot of money away. They're very conservative. They have, they know they can take three months or six months or eight months off and still have enough money to keep paying the bills and they keep their, their overhead low. A lot of them, in my experience, have moved to the middle of the country. And I think that this is, we'll talk about this in the next question, but I think that we're going to see more as, as this becomes more competitive, you're going to see more and more people moving out of urban areas as, as this virtual work um, happens where they can get into something where it's much more cost effective. Go ahead, John. Jeff, sorry. Uh, no problem. I, I think to kind of miss the biggest advantage versus disadvantage is lack of stress. So if you're working for yourself or always hustling for that next gig, that next job, mm -hmm. uh, it can be stressful. I yeah. mean, I've been doing it for 30 five plus years. And uh, yeah, it, it does wear on you at times. It's very rewarding whenever it all happens. But for those that are just out there thinking that they can just go out and automatically get successful and be successful and, and get yeah. success, it's not always this as uh, roses and, and uh, sugar plums as you think it is. And so it takes a lot of work to get to where some of us are. And at the same time, working for somebody, it's not bad. It, it's usually a lot of times it's pretty good to know that, hey, I've got a check next week. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. 
Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Wall Street Journal says the hottest big city labor markets are in order. Austin, San Jose, uh, SLC, Salt Lake City, Boston, Orlando, Raleigh, Nashville, Seattle, Denver, and Dallas. What makes these hot and which of these will rise and fall in the list? Go ahead, Nigel. Well, I think proximity to barbecue is probably the, the common element of most of those, <laughs> uh, at least for some of them. And for important. It's important. Yeah, it is important. And the reality, of course, is from, from my youth, I lived in the city I first lived in with my first job because that's where the job was. And I went to the city where the job was. I think what's different today is that we're finding a generation that will pick different cities to go live with because they fit their lifestyles. They may be music-based, they may be barbecue-based, they may be outdoors, they may be climbing, you know, running, camping, whatever it is. And then they're going to look for a job near that, which is why all of those cities are actually not very similar because Boston isn't necessarily like Austin weather-wise, but Boston has a whole bunch of things going for it as Austin does. And so I'm I'm watching, you know, downtown Austin, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, people building huge buildings because they're going to assume that people want to live in the city and then they're going to want jobs. And I think that's that's coming first. Yeah. Good, Jeff. Well, I think the only reason Boston is on that list is because it sounds like Austin, and most people are wanting to go to Austin anyway, since it's the top of the list, right? But you notice there are two cities on there that are Texas cities, and I find that really fascinating myself being a Texas bred and born. Um, I, I think that the majority of people are doing exactly what Nigel says. They're going after weather. They're going after climate. They're going after things that are what they where they want to live is what they envision how they want to live. And then they get here and they feel the heat and then they may want to move further north at that point in time. Uh, but barbecue is definitely high on the list too. And we do have a lot of it here. I feel like that uh, the tech push into Austin is dragging also Dallas with it at the same time because they're so close. They're only three hours away from each other. So that's that's one reason why Dallas is probably on the list. And Dallas actually has had a very large tech cor corridor for quite a quite a while uh, with NCR up there and, and a lot of other IT companies that started from that area. Uh, but I feel like that, that uh, my brother lives in, outside of Austin and the growth I've seen in the last two years is just unbelievable. And this is all post-COVID, just it's unbelievable. It's like little California there now, but uh, hopefully those things would change that they brought over. Good, Bill. It's interesting. You know, I've noticed a thing and I'm calling it uh, locational parochialism. Um, I remember in some of my travels really being surprised and and my understanding of the world was enhanced. Like when I was on the subway in London once, I remember looking across the car and there was a gentleman sitting there and he was a Sikh. He had a turban on, but he was in a probably $2,000 suit. And I realized we were heading toward the city of London and he was obviously an executive down there. I had not connected those two things, his, his uh, grouping in society, if you would, and high finance. I did them. If I'm in a smaller town, and I've noticed this with a couple of my friends who've moved from bigger urban areas to a smaller town, it, both things get affected. The The person coming in brings more big city to the small town, but the small town also starts affecting the person who's coming into that. And they start 
you know, with the Chamber of Commerce and whatever, and everybody's talking about different topics or different things. This is a baseball town. This is a football town. If I'm a football guy and I move to a baseball town, am I going to switch? Am I going to start talking baseball in the bars? Because that's what everybody in the bars are talking about. Right. It's just interesting for me. And I'm not saying it's good or bad or different, but this distributed moving to smaller places, it may be like what Gerta said about you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back into you. I think it's changing all of us. And this is unsettled for me at this point, how much of an impact this has on your life for the rest of your life. And I still think that a, a big piece of this is going to have to do with um, available bandwidth, you know, and, and the, the competition of where that is. Um, I think that it is not hard for most of the country by geographic, not by population, but most of the country to become very competitive with um, many of these cities as um, by just making sure that fiber gets out to everyone. If, if As people get one gig, two gig, three gig, five gig, I think, um, what is it, AT&T is now offering five gig in some places, um, you know, uh, fiber. As people start to do more of that and if, as it starts to become more symmetrical, I think you'll see more and more people able to take advantage of that. And I think when people start when they're young, they really want to be in a city where everything's moving and happening. As soon as they start having kids, like for me, I was in, I was in Knob Hill on top of a building in a tiny little apartment. <laughs> That's all I could afford. Um, and uh, uh, as soon as we, as soon as my son started walking, we were like, okay, it's time to move out of the city. You know, like it was, you know, we needed to move somewhere where we could have more space for the same amount of money. And I think that that's where, you know, so it just depends on where people are in their, in their um, family orientation as well. Um, and I think that it's going to, um, uh, it's going to change the United States dramatically as bandwidth gets out to further and further out away from the urban areas. Uh, Cause right now it's been mostly focused there, but if it gets into more and more small areas where people have low latency, high reliability, high, you know, uh, high speed internet uh, is probably going to make more of a difference in the, into the makeup of this country than almost anything else that we could do. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in uh, Madison, Indiana. Access to gear versus access to an internet interface. Will the latter continue to be the way production goes? Good, Jeff. Absolutely. If you ask me, internet is first and foremost, without a doubt. Good connection, stable connection. It'll be more valuable than any kind of gear you put in. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what we're trying to do with with this show, it's really, you know, we're not the answer yet. We're trying to figure out what that answer is. And we're having a lot of people figure it out. But what we're what we're moving towards is how do we build global teams, you know, that are just interfacing with the, you know, how do we build it? How do we make it more simple for someone to run the show? How do we, but then have people who have enough practice, but we want to be able to choose people based on their skill, not based on their physical location. And we're going to want to do that over and over and over again. So, um, so anyway, so it's, it's going to be, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting how this, how this all pans out. But I think you're absolutely right, uh, Jeff, that, that it's going to be access. I mean, at least at the first step. And I mean, there's always going to be need for people to be on the ground shooting stuff, but that need is going to keep on, you know, we need less and less people um, to do that. And like our standard operating when we're shooting now is, we have parts of the crew that are all online, you know, that are watching and managing things. And we don't need to, need to have them all there. In fact, we, we look at equipment now. If it doesn't have some way for us to control over the internet, we're like, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can use that. So, all right, good conversation. I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. I'm always like, Mondays, I always see these conversations. I go, eh, we'll see how this goes. So um, anyway, really, really great set of questions from the, from the producers. Thank you so much for keeping the conversation going. Thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. It's great to have, have your uh, knowledgeable input uh, on these questions. And then thanks to the crew, once again, a global crew 
looking at a computer interface, making this happen every single day, seven days a week. So we really thank, thank you for your contribution. All right. Now we're going to jump into After Hours. Myself, I said that was Kirta, it was Nietzsche. I totally messed up the quote. We're gonna cut your pay in half. Thank you for only cutting it in half. <laughs> the abyss is still waiting for my paycheck. 